Second Corinthians chapter 5. I feel impressed to change the message that I was going to bring this morning. I planned to speak from 2 Corinthians chapters 2 and 3, who is sufficient for these things. But I want to speak to you this morning on this passage, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 10 and 11. May we bow together in prayer, please. Our Father, we thank Thee for all that has been done to bring the people here today. We thank you for that tremendous group of juniors who are meeting and those in the children's church, first, second, third grade, for those in the preschool church right now, those in the nursery, and for everyone in this auditorium and the larger audience who are listening by radio. Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit will do his work of conviction and someone who has never been saved will come to Jesus today. Oh, Spirit of God, we're dependent upon Thee. And unless Thy Spirit does the work of conviction and conversion, there'll be nothing for eternity accomplished. Have Thy way in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 10 and 11, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. There are many judgments spoken of in the Scripture. There's the judgment of the believer's sins at Calvary. There's the self-judgment in a Christian's life as he takes stock of his own life and his own affairs. There's the judgment of the great nations when the Lord comes, depending on how the nations of the earth have treated God's special people, the Jews. And then there's the judgment of the great white throne, spoken of in Revelation 20. And all the lost and the dead who have been in their graves all these years, and those who have rejected Jesus Christ are placed before the judgment of the great white throne and ask for a reason. Why did you thus treat the Son of God? Why did you say no to the voice of God in your heart? Why did you say no to the pleading promptings of the Holy Spirit as Jesus died on a cross for your sins. This judgment in 2 Corinthians 5.10 is a different judgment from that. And it speaks to the Christian. For we must all, believers, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord we persuade men. This was Paul's theme song. I believe it was Paul's life verse. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And Paul 
after he had that Damascus Road experience and yielded his heart to Jesus Christ, never was the same again. And he never lost an opportunity to tell people that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. It is said that before Paul died on the Appian Way in the city of Rome, approximately the year 64 or 65 A.D., that the gospel of Christ had been spread all through Asia Minor, down into India, down into Africa, and over into Spain, and all through Italy, and up through Europe, and even to the British Isles. The gospel of Christ had been spread, and the reason the Lord's church was a literal flame of fire, expecting Christ to come eminently, and knowing that believers would appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one of us would then receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. The early church, the early Christian movement, was a literal flame of fire everywhere they went, telling folks about Jesus. Is it any wonder that in the Jerusalem, city of Jerusalem, where our Lord was crucified, half the population were members of the church ten years after Jesus died on the cross. And some of the priests were obedient to the faith, and God worked a mighty spirit of revival. It has always been God's plan that the church be in revival, 365 days a year, 52 weeks a year. Every Sunday, week after week after week, God doesn't want us to have just spiritual spurts. He wants us to be a flame of fire, a blaze of glory in the earth, going out, touching men and women's lives where they are, and bringing them the message of retrievement, the message of pardon, the message of God, the message of love, the message of life, the message of salvation. Billy Graham says what the world needs today and what the church needs is a revival of love. And when you and I fall in love with the Lord Jesus, love Him with all our heart and mind and soul and spirit, then there's going to be revival. And someone has said revival is nothing else than starting over again in our love for Christ. It is a falling in love with the Lord Jesus. It is saying, my Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I need thee, my Savior, it's now. And when our heart gets like that, and our spirit gets like that, and we have an attitude of dissatisfaction and of need, and we hold our cups out, as the spiritual says, our empty pitchers to a full fountain, and allow the Spirit of Jesus to flow down in us and for us and to us and then through us into the lives of others, then something miracle takes place, a miraculous transformation in our own lives and in the lives of others. It has been said that a miracle is something that defies the normal laws and accomplishes an end result that pleases God. And we want a miracle. That's what happened when you got saved, whether it was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. When Jesus Christ 
broke the bonds of your life and moved in and you received him as your Savior and Lord, a miracle took place. And this is the reason we need the miracle revival this week. I want to present to you three reasons in my own heart why we need revival, why we need the Spirit of God, why we need spiritual power. First of all, because of the crisis days in which we live. We live in an age of crisis. We read about the crisis in the Congo, the crisis in the China, the crisis in Vietnam, the crisis in Thailand, the crisis in Korea. All around the world there are crises. There's a moral crisis going on at this moment. You read in the paper the other day about two teenagers who hired a young man 19 years old to shoot their daddy. And then they took his credit cards and his money and went on a spending spree down in Florida while his body rotted on their home. Nine days they were gone. You read day by day in the papers all about the problems we face. I'm sure you read about the film director who pleaded guilty. Movie director, and I'll not mention his name, pleaded guilty to unlawful sexual intercourse with a 13-year-old girl, and he could face up to 50 years in prison or commitment to a state mental hospital and possible deportation from the United States. Another article, premarital sex advocates avoid the details in what occurs after premarital sex. A study reports 28% of the teens are problem drinkers. There's a suit challenging the law on the Ten Commandments here in Kentucky. Our state legislature had the courage to pass a law saying that the Ten Commandments could be placed on the walls of the schools of Kentucky. And immediately five atheists in Louisville went to court and put an injunction against this. There is, a, there is a detailed satanic attempt to take from America that which brought her to this, to make her the greatest nation on earth. And there's a, an attempt to rob this great nation of the moral principles upon which we've been founded. And the crisis days in which we lie, live call for revival. Living together under mutual contract, a whole article about why <clears throat> more and more Young guys and girls are deciding to live together without even bothering to get married. Half of the young adults surveyed say that extramarital sex, there's nothing wrong with it. And on and on I could go. Some of these articles are so sickening I can't even read them out loud. Here's one that uh, would hurt your heart. Listen to this. It was in the Reader's Digest. At Los Angeles bar, men stare intently at brightly lighted stage. There a young man and woman dance briefly, disrobe, then engage in sexual intercourse. A woman in Putney, Vermont, opens her mail to discover a slick brochure advertising eight millimeter color films. The ad has 10 explicit color photographs of naked men engaging in homosexual acts, a woman entwined with two men, and naked men and women caressing each other each film is described in lurid language, and the rest of that report is so sickening, I don't even want to read it in public. Vance Havner has said, no nation is richer or healthier than its soul. 
By that standard, America is a sick land, an age that blames its sin on society instead of itself. Fed on movies from the gutter, reared on music apes would be ashamed of, with a code of morals that eclipses Sodom and Gomorrah, where only one out of 12 goes to church, 15 million sex magazines read every month by a third of the people, more barmaids than college girls, three times as many criminals as college students, a murder every 40 minutes, and a major crime every 22 seconds. Well, I could go on and on. I don't want to take God's precious time to just talk about all the sins and all these clippings because sin has always been on the march. The days have always been filled with sin. But the thing that makes God's heart sick is the sin in the lives of His people. In Jeremiah chapter 2, <clears throat> my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. And we read in Revelation chapter 3, the church at Laodicea, write these things, saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness. I know thy works. Thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou art cold or hot. So then, because thou art neither cold nor hot, but are lukewarm, I will spew thee out of my mouth. The only sin in the Bible that makes God sick is the lukewarmness on the part of His people. God's people, called by His name, not able to decide whether they want to be on God's team or on the devil's team, whether they want to play for the Lord or play for the world. And God says, this makes me sick and I'll vomit you out of my mouth. And we live in a day when the people of God have very little conviction and very little spiritual standard. Roland Level, who used to be president of the New Orleans Seminary, wrote a book called The Romance of Evangelism. In it, he gives these startling statistics. He said 20% of the Christian people of Baptists never pray, 30% never give, 45% never serve, 55% never come to Sunday school, 75% never go to church on Sunday night, 85% never attend prayer meeting, and 95% never go soul winning. And that's among Baptists, the people of God that believe that people are lost without Jesus. Now, beloved, in times like these, we need revival because of the crisis days in which we live, crisis among God's people, sin in the church, sin in the lives of believers. We leave the Word of God like a good luck charm. We have it on our coffee tables and on our bookshelf, but we seldom open it. And we very seldom read it. And less than that do we ever heed it and apply it to our hearts. We have turned God's Sunday into a fun day, God's holy day into a holiday, and we go on a spending spree on Sunday afternoon. All the shopping centers in this city would have to close their stores if the Christian people of Bowling Green would stop shopping there. You see, the Lord's Day is a sign to an unbelieving world. It is a different day. It's a day when Jesus got up from the dead, and it's a day when God's people need to celebrate it and tell the story and spend all of our time honoring the Lord Christ, serving Him. This is a day when people think nothing of profaning the sacred. They break into churches. They steal God's money. They steal from God 
And I want to tell you, God will not hold him guiltless. I read the other day about a church that was in session and some thugs came to the door with pistols and, and put their guns on the preacher and on the ushers and then very mildly went down and got the offering and took it out. That's the kind of day in which we live. And it might not always be that pronounced and that open. Some may more secretly, connivingly take that which belongs to God. And God says that sin. And remember this, that God has the final word about it all. There are people who live in open sin, and there are others who hide their sin and make it secret among God's people. And it's the kind of thing that makes God's stomach vomit. Now, ladies and gentlemen, unless we have revival in our day, unless in the 1970s and the 1980s God should be able to sweep into the hearts of men and women God's church so that there'd be a glorious outbreak of spiritual power like the Great Awakening under Jonathan Edwards or the Second Great Awakening that occurred here in Kentucky and spread and one of the instruments was D.L. Moody and Fanny Crosby and the others. Unless there's a spiritual renaissance, unless there's a spiritual revival, the Christian movement is having no influence and will be void of its spiritual power. W.A. Criswell, pastor of Dallas First Baptist Church, said that unless the church, the Christian movement, those who really realize and believe the Word of God and realize that men are lost without Christ, unless we radically change our approach to go out outside the church and reach the people where they are, unless there's a radical change by the year 2000, the Christian movement will amount to fewer than 2% in the world. When I began to preach at Glendale, 35 to 40% of the world's population call themselves Christians. Today, fewer than 24% of the world. By the year 2000, if the Lord tarries, according to Criswell, fewer than 2% of our world. Why? Mahatma Gandhi perhaps suggested the reason. He was the leader of 400 million Hindus in India. And shortly before he died, he said, for a while I wavered between Christianity and Hinduism. But when I regained the balance of my mind, I decided that Hinduism, that, that cow worship was the sacred gift of Hinduism to the world and was sufficient for my soul salvation. But, he said, I think I could have become a Christian had it not been for Christians. God's people. Because of the crisis days in which we live, we need revival. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Secondly, because of the cost if men should be lost. This book says in Psalm 9:17, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. I don't know what you think of hell, but the Bible says hell is real. Hell is a place of outer darkness. Hell is a place of torment forever and forever and forever. And if you have a loved one that leaves this life without Jesus Christ, that loved one will be in hell. In Luke chapter 16, and in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, 
And he saw Abraham afar off, and he cried, Father Abraham, send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am tormented in these flames. But the voice from the other world came back saying, Son, remember that in thy lifetime you had your opportunities, but now there's a great gulf fixed. and There's no way to transverse between. Hell is real. A number of years ago, I visited an old man in the hospital. I used to go and stand by him and take his hand. His family told me he was lost. He had had a stroke and was not able to talk, and he was in his 80s. I used to say to him, Mr. Will, won't you open your heart to Jesus? And I told him all the scriptures I knew about how to be saved. And those glassy eyes would just look up at me. The doctor said he could hear, but he couldn't talk. He couldn't even respond. And I didn't know whether he was believing, whether he was receiving. And I'd go day after day and try to witness to him and talk to him about Christ. Never any response. Finally one night, I prayed before I went to bed, Oh God, show me what hell's like. That's a dangerous prayer. And in my sleep that night, it seemed that Mr. Will had died. They called me to the funeral home and I went over there. I stood by his casket. I looked down in his dead face. Everybody left the, left the room. I was just standing there with the man to whom I had witnessed and talked. And suddenly, I saw that old body, the old man's body began to writhe in pain and move and squirm. You could tell there was terrible pain written all over his face and his body was moving all around in awful pain. And I said to the funeral home director, please come back, sir, come back in here. The funeral director came back and I said to him, sir, I thought death erased all the pain. Look at this man. And with terrific prophetic insight, the funeral director said, Preacher, there's some pain that death does not take away. And in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. I went the, that night. I got up out of my sleep, and I went up and stood by that old man, Mr. Will Stubblefield. And I pled with him to open his heart to Jesus. And I told him about hell and about heaven and about Christ dying on the cross for his sins. And I pled with him to give his heart to Jesus. And I said, Brother Will, if you'll open your heart to Christ, I know you can't talk, you can't even move, but I'm going to ask God to give you the power to just squeeze my hand. And I waited. And in a moment, that old man squeezed my hand. And his eyes met my eyes and tears came in his eyes. That's the only testimony. And after a little while, he was gone. Some of you know that old man. We buried him over Beach Creek, Beach Grove, I think. Will, in heaven today, I believe, at the last moment, saved, so is by fire. Beloved friend, hell is real. And the awful cost, if men should be lost forever and forever and forever, your mother, your dad, your son, your daughter, your little boy, your little girl, your friend, your neighbor, somebody in your class, lost. That's the reason we're having a revival. That's the reason we call on God's people to come. That's the reason we urge you to warm your heart at the throne of God and let the Holy Spirit fill you so in turn you and I can go out and plead and plead 
with men and women to be reconciled to God. Last of all, knowing the terror of the Lord, we beseech you, we plead with you, we beg you to be reconciled to God because of Calvary. Not only because of the cost, not only because of the crisis, but mainly because of Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. The Lord Jesus died on a cross for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He became the accursed thing. And they spit at him. And they nailed his hands to the cross and his feet to the cross. And they said, if you're really the Son of God, come down from there and save yourself and us. And they hurled their ridicule at him, the meek Lamb of God. They stripped him naked. And there in front of all Jerusalem, the Son of God bore your shame, my shame, in his own body on the tree that we might be saved. Oh, because of Calvary, I beseech you to be reconciled to God. I beseech you to come to Christ. I urge you to be done with sin and the play toys and the foolish, feverish things of the world that would keep you from God and hasten quickly to Christ. Years ago, back in the days before, we had modern medicines to deal with some of the terrible diseases we have. A preacher tells a story about his little boy who had diphtheria. The doctor told the preacher he could, if he wanted to go in and talk to his little boy, he'd have to put a mask on and put a gown on. He could go in and stand there and talk to him. The daddy did it. He stood there talking to his little boy, and the little boy looked up and said, Daddy, why are you dressed like that? Daddy said, Son, you're very sick. Daddy didn't want to take these germs out so other little boys and girls would get sick too. The little boy said, Daddy, am I very sick? Yes, son, you're very sick. And after a little while, that little boy opened his eyes and said, Daddy, Daddy, am I going to die? And Daddy was trapped by his own teaching. He told his son never to tell a lie. He said, son, that's what the doctor says, but you're not afraid to die, are you? The little boy looked into his daddy's eyes and said, Daddy, Daddy, if God's like you, I'm not afraid to die. If God's like you, I'm not afraid to die. Oh, listen, that's what the world is saying. They're looking. They're searching. They're on a quest. They want to know God. And they look at us. They say, if God's like you, I want him. Or if God's like you, I don't want him. I wonder if today we could say, Jesus, here's my life. Take it and use it and break it and make it and mold it. I want to be part of God's revival. If you've never received Jesus, open your heart to him now. May we bow our heads in prayer, please. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Our Father, we thank thee for the goodness of God. We pray this morning that the Lord Jesus will touch the hearts men and women and boys and girls, and will turn to Christ. I believe, Lord, there's some who really want to be part of God's revival and are willing to pay the price to say, yes, Lord, use me, use me. Take me and break me and mold me and make me and use me, use me, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand, please? I'd like to request that no one leave
no one move around the service will be over in just a moment listen carefully the purpose for which we have come is this invitation it's a time for you to respond and here's the response I believe there are some of you some in this auditorium the things that ought not to be there. I want to ask you to come, recommitting your life to Christ, to say, I want to be part of God's revival. And I want, I want God to use me. I want, I want to live a godly life. And then secondly, there are people in this room, you've been saved, but you're not active in a church here. You're not, you're not a member of a church here. And God wants you to. He's calling you. He, he has touched your heart. He's already shown you that this is the church where you ought to serve. If the Lord has shown you that, I want to urge you this morning to come and become part of this fellowship by a covenant relationship. Either moving your letter or coming by baptism or coming any way God's Holy Spirit has talked to your heart by statement of faith. Will you do that? And then there are others who have never been saved. You don't know the Lord. Oh, I plead with you today to come. Out of your bondage, sorrow, night, come to Jesus. Jesus is tenderly calling you home, calling right now. Will you come? Who will step out first for the King as we begin to sing? Will you come?